think about how the things that make us angry are the things that we care most about, right? I've said this a thousand times that the opposite of love is not hate because hate takes energy and, and the opposite of love is apathy. And so when we get angry about something, it reveals something about us and how we feel about that thing. And what makes Jesus angry? What gets Jesus riled up? And if you start asking people, hey, what makes Jesus angry? You're going to get different answers. Some people are going to say everything. Because some people grew up in a, in a religious culture where they were sort of taught about a God who's mad about everything and everything makes him mad. And so you, you have to walk a very tight line. And if you move to the left or move to the right, God's going to be angry and it's going to be a problem. And then there's some people who, if you ask them, well, what makes God angry? They'd say nothing because they grew up in a sort of a religious climate where nothing really makes God angry and everything was just about grace and everything was fine and God was always happy with everything and whatever seemed to be going on would be good with God. But really neither of those things are accurate. And the lie that wants to creep in to our hearts this morning and every morning is that what matters most to God, what mattered most to Jesus, is that we keep the rules, is that we behave, is that we do the things that we're supposed to do. And I want us to look at a passage of Scripture this morning that will help us get our mind around the way God interacts and cares for things and the way He gets emotionally invested in things. And it will help us to, to rightly enter into the things that God's calling us to do. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. Now, let's just hold on a second. Jesus goes into the synagogue. And the first thing the Bible tells us is that he notices someone. Of all the people that are in the... Now, the synagogue would have been a very chaotic place. And there would have been all sorts of hustle and bustle going on in the outer court. There would have been a bunch of people packed into the inner court. And of course, there were people on the outer court who weren't allowed in the inner court. And then there were people in the inner court who were in there because they were allowed. And they were very proud to be allowed. And then, you know, the people in the outer court wanted to be in the inner court. And then there were people outside of the synagogue that weren't even in, allowed in it at all who were curious about what was going on. And there's people coming, people going. There's all these things happening. Jesus shows up. And then the Bible says he notices something. He notices someone. And I want you to see this morning that every act of love begins with noticing. 
You see, if we don't notice things, then we're not going to be moved to respond to things. We're not going to, our hearts aren't going to engage. Jesus makes it a practice and a habit of noticing what others are willing to overlook. And here's what that means. It means a lot of things, but, but it, it means for us this morning, for you and for me, that when you came in here this morning, and you can be encouraged that the God who notices things notices you. He notices you. And he notices the things about you that other people don't notice. He knows your fears. He knows your pains, your joys, your struggles, your victories. His eyes are open to the hard things that are going on in your life. He notices that. And you know, sometimes, I'm sure in this man's life, yeah, I grew up with a severely handicapped younger brother. And so I know a lot about this. I know a lot about how people respond to people who are different. You walk in the grocery store, everybody turns the other way. No one wants to look. Then you have some people who just stare. Almost no one would interact correctly. It would be just pretend like we don't see anything or just stare like we've never seen anything like that before. See, Jesus notices, but he notices in the right way. And I want you to notice the disconnect between Jesus and the people around him whenever you're reading the Bible. I want you to notice how Jesus is doing one thing while the people around him are doing another thing, and they're in the same place. They're in the exact same place. I want you to notice that the people in this text this morning that are committed to God are going one way, and the God that they're supposedly committed to is going the opposite way. And what would be a mistake is if we approached our time together this morning by, by allowing our hearts to posture in such a way where we look at the religious people of the New Testament. And we say, look at them. Look at how wrong they were. Look at how off base they were. How could they miss this? How could they not see this? That would be a mistake. What God wants us to do is to look into a mirror and say, we have to be careful that this isn't us. We have to guard our hearts against this possibility, this reality, because 
it is a possibility and it is a reality. And it's not here, but we don't ever want it to be here. Amen? So we have to be careful. Look at verse 2. So they, so we have he noticing and we have they watching him closely. They being the religious leaders. So they're watching him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So here we are on the Sabbath, the synagogue's packed, Jesus walks in, he notices. The religious leaders are all over the place, they're oblivious to what Jesus notices, they're just focused on him, and when they see him, and they see that he's noticed, they begin to watch him closely so that they might accuse him. And all of this is centered around this man, this man who is on the outside, on the outside of society, on the outside of the norm, on, certainly someone who doesn't feel like he's on the inside, so, certainly someone who doesn't feel like he's welcome or accepted or someone whose life is because of no presumably... Uh, fault of his own, his life has become fundamentally different because he has this challenge. He has this hand. And I want you to realize something. That when we, when we notice the things going on around us, it's important to realize Sometimes it can, it can feel a bit overwhelming. Right? Yeah. But I want you to know something. We're not responsible to fix every problem in the world. Okay? Jesus didn't fix every problem in the world. But we are responsible to do everything we can to show the love of Christ to those that God causes us to notice, right? You see, so don't, a lot of times our heart wants to just shrink away from something because we feel overwhelmed in it. But if you just step into, when, when we get into the heart of God, Things become possible that otherwise wouldn't be possible. So Jesus, look at verse 3. He says to the man who had a withered hand, step forward. Now what's interesting to me is, I can so relate to this moment. This brings back so many bad memories of growing up. The last thing that this man would have wanted would have been to be singled out by Jesus, to be called up in front of everybody by Jesus. 
what his lifelong ambition would have been, I can assure you that this is true, would have been to fly under the radar in every scenario possible. You see, when you don't feel normal, all you want is to be normal. That's all you want is to be normal. And it just wears you out every day. But Jesus doesn't say to him, hey, he doesn't whisper to him in passing, hey, don't worry. I'll meet you out back. We'll take care of this. Or he doesn't just, you know, he could have done this any way he wanted to do. But Jesus is, as we're going to see, he's on a mission here to make a point. And so he tells him to step forward. In verse 4, now he said to them, see, we're back to them again. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. So as they're observing Jesus, see there, all of this is going on. He notices them. They notice him. They're watching him. He's aware of what they're doing. All of these things are happening at one time. And so Jesus calls him up. Because he's going to make a point here. And he asks them a question. And they have nothing to say. Because what Jesus is doing is exposing the reality that. If we're not careful, religion will miss the point. It'll just miss the whole point. I mean, here the, the, the issue is the Sabbath. That's the issue that's at, in, you know. In the heart of this controversy, at least for the religious leaders. So what is the Sabbath? Why did God give the commandment to rest? He gave it as a gift. It's a good thing. The Sabbath was given for God's people. See, it's one of the things that God had for his people is the Sabbath. It, it, it's to help them. It's to bless them. You see, in the Old Testament, when, when God commanded his people to rest on the seventh day, just like he rested in creation on the seventh day, he commanded his people to rest on the seventh day. The intention of the Sabbath was that God's people would work six days a week, rest on the seventh day, and still still reap the same harvest as if they would have worked seven days a week. That God didn't reduce. God didn't reduce what the land produced. God didn't reduce what the crops produced to a, a six-day amount. No, He blessed His people. They received what would have been so they could rest. They could be refreshed. They could focus on Him. And God could bless them. It was a good thing. It wasn't meant to be a, a, a burden. It wasn't meant to be something that weighted people down. And what had happened was God's gift became a rule to be followed instead of a relationship to be nurtured. What had happened was that gift had turned into something that was, was just like a noose around their neck. You see, resting... And not working in the fields became not doing anything. 
It became, it became not, you, you couldn't give a sick person medicine. You couldn't rub grain together in your hand because it would be constituted work. You couldn't give a, a hungry person food. God never intended any of that. And so something that was so simple and such a gift and such a blessing had been perverted into this burden. If you just look back at the very last verse of, the, of chapter 2, look at Mark 2, 27. Just before this happens, you can tell what's on Jesus' mind because he said the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. You see that? And what that means is Jesus is saying God didn't create people so that he would have someone to keep his rules. That's not what this means. It means God created the Sabbath to be a blessing to people, but it had gotten twisted around. In other words, it would be like saying, it would be like me saying, honey, we need to have some children because we need somebody to play with these toys. No, see, the toys exist for the kids. Kids don't exist for the toys. You see how if you start applying Sabbath, the Pharisees' Sabbath logic to things in your life, it, it would just become ridiculous and absurd. Everything would go backwards. But that's what they had done. And that's the situation that Jesus came into. See, our zip code's filled with people who were introduced to a God who is primarily concerned about behavior. Most of the people in 39503 are not in church this morning. I wonder why that is. I doubt seriously that very many of them, there's some. There's some people out there that grew up like I did. There's some people out there that, that you know, have grown up in an atheist family, don't know anything about the Bible, never been to church don't have any sort of context, but for that to be the case, they would almost certainly have had to relocate here from somewhere far away. Most people are not in church, and they have some idea about why. And they have a pretty good idea about what happens if you go to church. Maybe they met people who Kept all the rules. See, here's the thing about a God who's interested in keeping all the rules. It won't take long before most people who enter that context realize they can't do it. And so they quit and give up. And so their testimony is, well, I don't go to church because I tried that and it didn't work. I already did that. It didn't work. I couldn't keep all the rules. I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't live up to the, the standard. Or maybe they met people who did keep all the rules. And so as they were trying to 
climb this ladder, this behavioral modification ladder to get to the place where they could keep all the rules or live the right way or do all the things they were supposed to do. They met someone who was successful at it. And they were mean. Or they were racist. Or they were unethical. Or they were uncaring. And as soon as that happened, they thought, well, well, now wait a minute. What am I doing? If I'm trying to get to this place, and I meet somebody who's at this place, and then they're not what they should be, then I'm out. You see, if, if you've ever been frustrated with people who had strong religious convictions but little compassion for others, then you have something in common with Jesus this morning. You have something in common with God. Because in verse 5, the Bible says that then Jesus... When he had looked around at them with anger, you see that? Being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. And verse 6 says, and then the Pharisees went out. And immediately plotted with their own enemies. But now they're together against Jesus with the Herodians against him. So that they might destroy him or they might kill him. See, Jesus responds to this situation with anger and sadness. And it's interesting, why is this story in the Bible? Why is this little moment Secured for all eternity in the scripture. There's so many reasons. The things that make us angry reveal the things we care most about. You see, you can get all the practices down. You can keep all the rules. You can... You can be great at all the external things and still have a hard heart. Still have a heart of stone. And how? How is that possible? How can you be, how can zeal go so wrong? Now remember, how did the, how did the Pharisees get to where they are? How did they get so far off track? Zeal. They were so zealous. They were so zealous to serve God and to to do it rightly and to make sure that, that everyone did this and everyone did that. And look at what it look at what it ended up in. How did we get here? I don't mean 
here on John Clark Road. I mean, here as a people. How did we get to where we are today as a people? They got where they are. Zeal gone awry. How did we get here? See, we started talking about we're just studying through 1 Corinthians and God started speaking to us and He started showing us things and He started talking to us about this issue of mission and pilgrimage and how it forms our identity and makes and shapes us into who we are and how we ha in order to go where God wants us to go, we have to go together. We're all individually responsible for our own journey, but we have to go corporately. It's the only way we can get there. And so as God started leading us into this, then we started having this conversation about What's the most important thing, Jesus? What's the most important thing? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Zeal. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's zeal, isn't it? You see the danger? You see why we need to have this conversation today? Because it's... It's dangerous if we, if, we, if we begin to resist or move in the wrong direction or, or listen to what God's saying and then supplant our own ideas on top of it. There's great danger in that. Our heart will get hard. What are the symptoms of a hard heart? We need to talk this through so we're, we're careful and make, we make sure it's not, it's not us. The first thing is we hoard. We hoard. We place ourselves at the center of the story. You see, everything about the zeal of the religious culture when Jesus came to earth was about them. It was totally about them. And if we're not careful, we can put ourselves at the center of the story. We can start thinking that everything we have is for us. It's not for us. Listen, family. We've been given a great deal, haven't we? And with it comes great responsibility. It's not for us. It's for us to steward. We can never forget that. You know what happens when we hoard? We don't notice. We have to make sure that we Remember, it's not about us. The second thing, the second symptom is that we're easily offended. It's the sign of a hard heart. It's an epidemic. Not just in the culture, but in the Christian culture. And you know how this happens? It's because we tell ourselves a negative story. We run a negative narrative in our head about the people around us. 
It's a very dangerous thing. Don't let Satan suck you in. Don't run this negative narrative in your head because if you do, your heart's going to get hard. You see, a big part of responding with grace. Do you know somebody who, who responds with grace? Because if you do, it's a wonderful thing. If you do, the people that know you are, are so encouraged by your presence in their life. And do you know how, how you do that? You give people the benefit of the doubt. Be very careful, brothers and sisters, about assuming negative first. It is a very unchristian thing to do. But unfortunately, it is a very religious thing to do. Be careful. The third symptom is we win the point but lose the person. It seems lately I can hardly preach a sermon without God bringing this out. And I, 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 I want to resist it, but I can't because God keeps bringing it out. So I guess we just have to keep hearing it. You see, when we live for being right instead of doing right, we're always wrong. Do you hear that? If we live for being right instead of doing right, we're always wrong. It's not about winning the point. It's about winning the person. It's about the person. And oftentimes the person has different ideas and different views about things than we do. And that's okay. Because you know what? That's, that's not the problem. The problem is we need the gospel. They need the gospel. And so whatever, whatever hurdle we have to climb to get the gospel to them, that's what matters. We hoard. We're easily offended. Or we win the point and lose the person. But what's the remedy to a hard heart? What unleashes the power of God in, in a people with zeal to do impossible things in impossible ways? It's very simple. To fall in love with what God loves. It's just simply aligning our affections. Aligning our desires. Aligning our understanding. With God's. When we line up with God. That's when supernatural things start happening. And this is what we have to remember. Is that when it comes to God. It was always and only ever about people it's always everything in the bible is about people it's about god's heart for people 
It's not stuff. It's not things. It's not opinions. It's not possessions. It's not behavior. It's about people. It's about people. It's about people. People matter to God. And therefore, they should matter to us. And they do. You see, but, but we need to make sure that we are connected to that, in tune with that, that we realize what hangs in the balance as we respond to the opportunities that God puts around us. You see, you're never closer to the heart of God than when you're loving the people around you. You understand that? Listen, I'm telling you, if you think the moment in your life that you're closest to the heart of God is when you're sitting there by yourself with the Scripture open, just pouring through God's Word, you're wrong. You're wrong. That's amazing, and that's good, and we got to do that. But that's not the moment you're closest to the heart of God. That moment is to keep you close to the heart of God. When you're close to the heart of God, when you're closest to the heart of God is when what God is pouring into you is pouring out of you. You understand that? Yes, it's when we're, when we're activating on the things that God's putting into us, when we're responding to the reality of the circumstances and situations around us. See, let's ask some questions. You know, it's not, it's not our first rodeo together. We've been down this road many times before together. And so I know how this goes, and many of you know how this goes. I know. I know the spiritual warfare that's ahead. I know the battles that are going to have to be fought. I know that. And that's okay, because I also know the God who brings victory. Yeah. But we got to remind ourselves and ask ourselves these questions. Like, for example, how many people believe that God doesn't care about their predicament because people who believe in God don't care about their predicament? You see, there's people that are sitting at home in our zip code, and they're not, they're not connected to a local church. They're not, they're not walking in the victory of the gospel because they've been connected in the past to someone who believes in God but didn't care about their predicament. They've been, listen, Jesus noticed. You got that? Let me, let me just get us thinking about some things. When you're driving around 39503, when you're driving down John Clark Road, when you're driving down your road in your neighborhood, wherever you are, when you're driving around, do you think about who lives in all the houses that you're passing? Who, who's, who lives there? I don't know your story, but I'm telling you, I used to live there. No one came to my house. Who lives in those houses? 
Who's, who, who's getting mail in all those mailboxes? How many people do we walk past and drive past every day and they're going to hell? And we don't notice. So we need to notice. We need to, listen, we, we can't say that we care about their predicament. We have to tangibly care about their predicament, right? Well, so what, what's the plan? What are we going to do? Huh? What are we going to? Let me ask you a question. How, how did the man with the withered hand find healing? Did he go find Jesus or did Jesus come find him? Did Jesus just build a building and say, here's, here's how we're going to reach the world. Everyone who comes to this building is going to hear that. No, he went to them. That's what we're supposed to do is go to them. We got to go to them and say, hey, we could probably do more. And we could certainly do less. But at least we care enough to walk down your street. At least we care enough to say, hey, here, here you go. Here's, here's something. I don't want to tell you anything. I just want to give you something. You know, watch this movie. Read this little pamphlet. See what God will do. Or the question, how many people don't take God seriously because they know churchgoers who don't take God seriously? No, we, we take God seriously, don't we? I mean, isn't that true about us? Don't, don't we take God seriously? Well, then, yeah. So let's do that. Let's take him seriously. Let's say we know that, that God has a heart for his mission and his people on pilgrimage together, right? This is National Orphan Care Month. So thousands of churches all over the country are taking a Sunday and talking about foster care and adoption. And there's not one thing I could say in this room about either of those two things that I haven't already said, is there? But you know what? The work's ongoing. It's not finished. It's ongoing. And I want you to pray about being a foster parent. I want you to pray about opening your home. And some of you are probably thinking, man, you know, 2% of Americans adopt. So we're like 10 times over the national average here at this church, right? Amen. So what do we do? Pat ourselves on the back and say, wow, look at how awesome we are? No. We realize that the work's not done, but here's the thing. And there's a lot of churches that need to 
get on board and take God seriously. But I'm not, I, I'm, I'm only the shepherd of one flock, so that's somebody else's problem. But here, I just want to say something to you. If, you, if, if God's been speaking to you about being a foster parent, if it's something that's been kind of, you're, you're curious about, maybe you just want to get involved and help some kind of way, you just want some more information, well, let me just say something to you. Listen, I am convinced that there, will, there is no better place in the world to be a foster parent than in Michael Memorial Baptist Church. There's nowhere that you'll be more successful than here. There's nowhere where you'll have more support, more care, more encouragement, more community, more resources, where you'll find people that know more about all of the things that so many people struggle with when they walk into foster care. It's not the case here. Because you're literally surrounded with people who have already walked that journey and know all of the things that you would need to know. And there's a lot of ways you can be involved to help. There's a table out in the foyer. I would just encourage you to go out. Just get some information. Just be open to what God might be doing. Just be open to it. And then secondly, be excited about 39503. Be, be excited about the mission that we're on together. Be excited about the opportunity that, that, that God's going to grow us in as we do this on pilgrimage. That the people that you're going to bond with as you go out together. The things you're going to see God do. You see, God, like we talked about last week, He has an illogical love for the lost, doesn't He? Yes, He does. And we want to share His passion. He's he's for the vulnerable. That's His heart. He's for the people that are far from Him. He's for them. And we are too. And so I don't, I don't know. I can't imagine. I can't imagine how you could hear the things you hear and be a part of this place and not be excited about what God's about to do among us. But as I say that, I know there's some who, who aren't and who won't. And I... It, it baffles me, but it is a reality. And so finally, I'll just say this, you know. Anyone can pick up a Bible and read it. Anyone. But not anyone can hear from God. You know that? God speaks to those who listen. That's why I always pray that God would give us ears to hear. 
Because we all have ears. But that someday there might be this moment where we all hear. When we come before God, you know, you can open your Bible and you can read. You're never going to read more than the Pharisees. No one in this room has any opportunity to memorize more Scripture than the Pharisees knew. You can do all of that, but here's the thing. God won't speak to a heart that won't listen. He won't. But if you say, God, I'm listening. I'm listening. See, you can fool me, you can fool your spouse, you can fool your kids, you can fool your community group, but you can't fool God. He knows. And if you are genuine and sincere, God, I want to hear from you. Speak to me. He'll speak. And I feel like as we go from this moment into the moments ahead for us, our prayer just simply needs to be, Jesus, help me to see people the way you see them and love them the way you love them. Knowing that's easy to say, but it's not so easy to do. Because it's going to mean, hey... It's going to mean some of you are going to open up your home. Share some of all that God's given you with somebody who needs it. Bring a, bring a child into your home and be a blessing to them. Give up your, you know, next Sunday. It's true, but it, it pains me to say it, but it's true. There'll be some people who won't bring the gospel to their neighbors because they don't want to miss a football game. They got other things to do. Just remember. When we hoard... It's a sign our zeal has gone wrong and our heart is hardened.